This is Monocle on Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's program, we meet the production designer behind the stage at this year's Eurovision. We also head to Alaska to talk to an architect building in the harsh Arctic environment, plus creative director of women's wear and accessories label Plan C. All that coming up on Monocle on Design. The world's media will descend on the north of England this week as the city of Liverpool is set to host the Eurovision Song Contest. This year's competition is unique. Traditionally, the previous year's winner plays host, but the UK offered to hold the event on behalf of 2022 champion Ukraine as its war with Russia is ongoing. The coming together of British and Ukrainian cultures was a key inspiration for production designer Julio Himadev, who, with the team at his firm Yellow Studio, based out of New York and Sydney, devised the 2023 Eurovision set. Julio came by our London studio to speak to Monocle's Lillian Fawcett, who began by asking how the process started. I was approached in around September, October last year, and I was invited to pitch for the design. I think there were four or five uh, production designers, some British and some international. And we were invited to pitch. So me, uh, myself and my studio work on the design to pitch for about three or four weeks. And then we presented it. We won the job and we pretty much ran with the design that we had proposed. And we changed a few things. Obviously, it was over budget. We brought it on budget and we started working out all the finer details. So it was a rather quick process. I am a massive fan of Eurovision. I grew up in Australia where it's always been a big cultural celebration. So, yeah, it's exciting. It's really exciting. And I mean, not long between finding out that you've got the bid and then having Eurovision happening. What's that process been like? What, what have you, how busy have you been the last few weeks? Well, it's a massive production. There's so many moving parts uh, and so many you know, exciting elements apart from the design. Um, but we have to be involved in, in, in all these conversations, you know, on stage and outside the stage. There's a lot of people working on this production, a lot of great professionals, both from the UK and also from the Ukraine. So I guess for us as, as designers, it's, it's, you know, we sort of have to just find our way and have a great team of people that support us. But everybody has been, you know, really lovely to deal with. And I think we all just sort of are holding hands until the final, to the grand finale, to produce such a big scale production. Let's talk a bit about the design then. I'm looking at it now. You have these huge open sides for the seated audience and then the stage kind of reaches out into the standing crowd as well. It looks vast, even though I, I think that the Liverpool arena where, where it's being held is maybe a slightly smaller capacity than some previous Eurovision arenas. Talk me through the main main features of your design. You know, when we got the job and the brief, we, we started exploring different cultural aspects of both the Ukraine and the UK. As you know, this is a very special year to be doing Eurovision because the UK is hosting uh, Eurovision on behalf of the Ukraine. So having both cultural identities um, as part of our design and research process has been a really interesting and enjoyable challenge. So 
diving into the design, we started exploring at, for example, the craftsmanship from the Ukraine, this sort of wonderful symbolic embroidery uh, and cultural costumes to music instruments to the national flower. And then we also compared those elements to what is you know, relevant and, and cultural uh, important from Liverpool and from the UK. And of course, Liverpool in itself has a great rich history uh, from a music perspective. So we did our homework in, com- in combining a lot of these. And then I guess we sort of concluded that this year in particular, we wanted to convey an emotion into our design, so or, uh, emotion into an architectural piece. So the concept for our design uh, resembles a hug, as if the people of Liverpool are welcoming the Ukraine, welcoming the people of Europe with open arms to say, welcome, we welcome you with, you know, with a great honor to celebrate music and celebrate voice through a lot of great diversity. So that's how we, we came up with our concept. And as you mentioned, there's a huge diversity in the acts that we're going to be seeing perform on this stage that you've designed. 37 different countries will be performing. They have different styles and and different routines. What are some of the ways that the set can be adapted to reflect their needs? I guess one of our main focus in designing such a big scale production is to offer a lot of transformation in our set design, in our landscapes, so that we can cater for all those 37 countries, as well as some of the special guests that we are having on the show um, that have been announced. So through technology, through automation, and through lighting integration, we are able to transform the stage from one identity of one country to another in a matter of seconds, especially doing a live production like Eurovision, where you have 37 contestants, we have less than a minute to do all the changeovers on stage, right? And what you see on television is just the final finished product on stage. But in the commercial breaks or in the postcards, we have an an army of crew coming into the stage doing those changeovers. So it's, it's been a challenge to design such a big stage with such quick changeovers. That was something else I wanted to ask about as well. It is the kind of behind the scenes team. Have you been working with them? And also, like we've been saying, it's such an international collaboration. Does everyone speak the same language? Are you all from similar backgrounds? How do you communicate with people? And especially when it needs to be done so quickly. (laughs) There's a mix of cultures in the team, that's for sure. But we all, you know, we all speak English. And the logistical team is involved from the very beginning. So when we are designing the show, we, we often have a dialogue about, is this possible, is this not? Often as designers, we, you know, we come out with grand ideas, but they're not possible to produce them in the changeovers, for example. So having a close connection with this technical crew and, and logistical team is it, really a key to success uh, in our production team. And did the technical demands of the set put any kind of limits on your creative license with the design? I wouldn't say a limit. I think it's a challenge to be able to, again, come up with you know, ideas that offer a lot of transformation. But I think that what we have come up with hopefully will give, you know, the you know the audience an exciting landscape. And our delegations from each country are really 
sort of making the set come alive in their creative. So, you know, we as a team sit down with each delegation from each country and explain what our set design can do and our landscape and all those transformation elements. And it's, then it's up to them to use them. And, you know, uh, luckily, most of them are using our set in very exciting ways uh, that make them look very unique. It must be exciting for you as well to see all the different variations that different countries are, are putting together, all the different ways that they're using the set that you've designed. Have you been surprised at the, the kind of variation and some of the, uh, the way that the stage has been transformed? I am. I am. I, I think it's, it's exciting to see how, you know, different personalities in some of these wonderful uh, performances are using this stage in ways that I didn't even think about when I was designing. Obviously, a lot of, a lot of performers bring their own props and it's how we blend their prop with, with our set design, with our content, with our lighting. This stage has three different areas to perform all with equal production values. So it's, um, it's, there's a lot of variety in the performances that we're going to see this year. And I think, I think that when we're designing this set, we have to be able to, as designers, to cater for the brand Eurovision. So creating a spectacle that says, oh, this is a Eurovision stage. But at the same time, it is our responsibility that the stage needs to be able to quickly change into all these different identities from each country, from France to Sweden to Croatia in a matter of seconds. So it's a delicate balance of how do you bring your own identity as designers to the grand scale of the show, but then again, how do you make it neutral so it can be adaptive? And finally, you grew up in Australia, which perhaps counterintuitively is in Eurovision. Yes. So maybe you're a little bit biased, but who's going to win? <laughs> well, it's so hard to predict. There are so many wonderful uh, entries this year. And I'm always surprised who wins. You know, I always put a bet on, on one country and surprisingly somebody else's win. And I, I, uh, so I'm excited to see who might be. I, 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 I have a few favourites, but it's, it's always extremely surprising. So we won't know until the night. Julio Himadere will be right back after this. The Monocle Daily wraps up the day in Europe every weekday at 1800 London time. Every edition of the show features panellists from the Daily's rota of experts. Those big questions are always important when it comes to politics. Plus reports from Monocle's correspondents around the world. Some hope Sunday marks the end of a chapter in Chile's recent history. And interviews with authors, politicians and pundits. It's kind of a ghost story, but you're not really sure. And also listen out for the Daily's On This Day historical feature and Henry Rhys Sheridan's Letters from New York City. Unless you work at a bin factory, you don't get to see too many brand new bins in your life. The Monocle Daily, taking a wider, deeper and occasionally lighter look at the news. Next up, I take on hostile design, with a few reflections on some unfriendly additions I've noticed recently. On a recent visit to Barcelona, I took some time to walk around Les Cotes de Saria. The neighbourhood in the west of the city is home to Roca Barcelona Gallery and a handful of striking mid-century apartment complexes. The latter are impressive works of concrete and steel, and I was instantly enamoured, 
until, on closer inspection, it became clear that several of them had their beams covered in anti-pigeon spikes. In architecture, as in many other things, the details matter, and this was a blight on the beautiful concrete form. While the use of spikes is understandable, I would argue that such interventions look worse than a building covered in, well, pigeon shit. These structures are not alone. In metropolises across the globe, you'll find netting, electrified wires, fake birds of prey and, of course, these metal spikes on awnings and beams. This approach also extends to other infrastructure aimed at deterring certain behaviours. Lumpy bits of metal on park benches to put off skateboarders and blue lights in stairwells to prevent people from lingering. This obsession with stopping unsavoury activities has led to a world where unsightly interventions are considered more acceptable than the consequences of certain human and animal behaviours. As owners, residents and custodians of buildings, we should want to keep them clean and tidy, yes. But buildings are also made to be lived in, which means that they will get messy every now and again. I'd argue that occasionally having to clean a structure's exterior of pigeon excrement is better than a space that is permanently blighted by unsightly spikes. Removing them will make our homes and neighbourhoods more visually appealing and inviting. And, at the very least, will make a walk around Les Cotes de Saria much more enjoyable. Flowers are blooming in temperate parts of the Northern Hemisphere, but spring takes on a different meaning in the far north. River and sea ice are thawing, and the Arctic's brief but vital construction season will soon begin. For architects and designers at the Cold Climate Housing Research Centre in Fairbanks, Alaska, this window is an exciting time to install the prototypes they've spent the long Arctic winter tinkering with in their laboratory. Monocle Radio's Gregory Scruggs spoke with architect Aaron Cook to find out about the unique challenges of designing for the cold. Our physical environment in Alaska is an antagonistic physical environment, so we deal with low temperatures, large storm seasons, and other climate-related challenges. It's also the forefront of the changes in climate that the world is seeing. So the Arctic is changing faster than most other regions in the world. So not only are we designing buildings for a difficult physical environment, we're also designing for a future that we're uncertain of. In what ways is the climate changing that affects the built environment, you know, specific communities that <clears throat> exist here in the region that you serve? And how is CCHRC helping those communities adapt to those changes? The biggest change to our region with regards to climate is not so much the temperature of the air as it is the, the temperature of the ground and the sea. That's what affects our infrastructure more than anything else. If you are a person from a southern latitude, you know deep in your heart that the default status of the earth is warm. That even in the winter, if you dug a hole deep enough, you would eventually get through the frozen ground to thawed ground. And that's how you view the world. If you're an Arctic person, you know deep in your heart that the default status of the earth is frozen. And that even in the deepest summer, if you took a shovel and dug through the ground, you'd eventually get a hole deep enough where you'd get to the natural status of the earth. You'd find frozen ground. Those two worldviews are very different. All of our infrastructure in the Arctic 
is built on this idea that we need to keep the ground frozen for our infrastructure to continue working as it does. As the temperature rises and our permanently frozen soils melt, it is going to have catastrophic effects on our infrastructure. Just as catastrophic as if you were in Florida and everything under 18 inches of ground froze. It would have the same amount of damage to the infrastructure uh, where we live. And so that's daunting from an engineering standpoint. In addition to the land, we're experiencing differences in the sea that compound the differences in the land. While much of the world is concerned with, and rightly so, rising sea level, our primary challenge is not rising sea level yet so much as it is the disappearance of our winter sea ice. So for most of our history here, the ocean freezes every winter. That sea ice protects our coastline. And as that sea ice is forming later and later in the year, our coastline, especially in western Alaska, spends more of the year unprotected from fall storms. And because of that lack of sea ice and that increased vulnerability to fall storms, we're losing unprecedented amounts of coastline, some places up to 80 yards a year. The need for communities to relocate, it sounds like you have been working on some designs, some projects here at CCHRC to make that difficult transition somewhat easier for these communities. Can you tell me what you've been proposing and and where you've been doing that? Well, generally, we don't propose relocation so much as just provide technical assistance for tribes and communities that have elected to relocate. And there are a number of them in the state. When you are a coastal community that is facing advanced erosion due to climate change, you basically have three options. You can elect to relocate entirely while you can before your original site uh, is compromised or unlivable. You can also elect to defend in place and elect to construct seawalls and other, other types of protective measures. There's also an intermediary choice, and that is to do what is called a managed retreat. And that is to not necessarily relocate entirely, but to seek higher ground within your traditional community, your traditional lands. That last choice, the strategy of managed retreat, is the strategy that the community of Unilakleet is undertaking. And that is a long-term plan for all future development to be relocated above the current town site so that the town slowly and organically creeps up the hill, as it were, to safer ground. That is in contrast to a, a relocation like, say, Muktavik or Shishmaref or Kivalina or villages that must move to an entirely different site. What that means, though, is all infrastructure that is built in Unilakleet should be part of that plan. It should be congruent with that plan. That means that if you're building a house in Old Town, it should be designed and it should be physically capable of being moved in that managed retreat scenario. And that's a difficult proposition from an engineering standpoint, to create a small house that's able to move when the time comes up to higher ground. So what we've done with the the community in Unilcleet is worked together with them on a foundation of a small starter home that is built on skids and is towable. 
up the hill to the new village site or to the new subdivision above Old Town. The foundation is designed to carry the load on three very large metal skis, skids basically, and the foundation above the skids is a three-dimensional space frame, so imagine a, a truss but in three dimensions with diagonal members that allow it to be towed from different directions and can handle both gravity loads, which is true for any truss, but lateral loads, which is not as common because you rarely have to tow a building horizontally in any direction. And so the truss looks a little different. With that base, then, you can put a house on top of it on a platform and know that it will be robust enough to be relocated. There are two competing issues in Unicleet. One is there's a, a housing crisis. There's a housing shortage. Uh, over a third of the housing units are overcrowded in the community. So it's very difficult to find a new home in the community. The other difficulty in Unilacleet is there's not a whole lot of wage employment. Jobs are scarce. There are no electricians or plumbers in the community, but there are plenty of equipment operators, carpenters, and laborers. And so how do you design a house for that particular set of conditions? Since there's not a plumber or an electrician, we decided that it would save a great deal of money if we built out the plumbed and electrical spaces ahead of time in a factory, or in this case, in our laboratory, as a proof of concept that it could be built in a factory. So we built a fully furnished kitchen, bathroom, and mechanical room in a container in our lab, and then closed the doors on the container and sent it 1,000 miles by barge up to Unilacleet from the lab. Once it arrived at site, they placed the container with the bathroom and kitchen on the foundation, but then all of the rest of the house was built on site. It was built by local labor around the container. In the end, when the house is finished, you won't notice that the bathroom and kitchen were containerized at all. And the reason for that is we do the community a disservice if we address the housing crisis by exacerbating the lack of jobs. So it wouldn't do any good to completely make a modular house in a factory, send the entire house to Unilacleet and call it good. Because then you've created a house, but you've taken four jobs away from the community, well-paying jobs. And so with a semi-modular approach, what we're trying to do is tease out the gaps in the capacity of the local labor force and leave all the rest of the jobs in the community. Architect Aaron Cook, in conversation with Monocle Radio's Gregory Scruggs. Launched in 2018, Plan C is a luxury women's wear and accessories label, producing masculine and feminine elements and playing with striking colours and bold prints, the Milan-based company can be found at multi-brand stores across the world. At this year's Salone del Mobile, Plan C launched a new limited edition lifestyle collection called Retrati. It consists of rugs made in collaboration with specialists Tram Paris, as well as resin sculptures. The brand's creative director, Carolina Castiglioni, dropped into our pop-up studio to discuss this new collection and her approach to producing and translating her designs in various mediums. 
Plan C, it's, it's very personal. It's very um, my personal style and what I would wear and buy. And so it's very instinctive. And I really love to mix different colors, maybe odd colors together that at the end works. <laughs> the fabrics are the key elements for me. I do a lot of research on fabrics and the high quality and details uh, So it's textile driven, it's color driven. I mean, yeah. uh, you say your inspiration is from, you know, looking for things that you'd actually want, want to wear yourself. What prompted you to, to start a brand in, in 2018? Why start Plan C, I guess? Because I've been working, my, my family had Marni for 20 years and um, I've been working there for 13 years doing many things. We really decided to start again with our brand. The idea was to start in our way. So just two collections a year. With one collection you cover six months. My passion is design and art and to mix my, my creative into different things. For the Salon del Mobile we are launching our new project that it's called Uh, ritratti, that means portrait. I start from picture that I've done to myself and my kids, and then I uh, transform it into design, uh, color block design, and then uh, next step <laughs> uh, transformed into uh, sculptures, resin and with marble powder uh, sculptures. And then with a concept of zoom in and zoom out, uh, I, I created some patterns on rugs that we developed with Trame Paris, handmade in Morocco. And, so, and then we have shirts and bags. And then the same design comes again into the fashion. And so I, I developed the same design that starts on the mohair knit and goes into a sequence skirt. So it's really a mix of art, photograph, design and, and fashion. And this is all coming from, from, I guess, a drawing as a starting point and then you yeah. know, spilling yeah. down. What's the challenge of translating something like that onto so many different mediums? I mean, you've got textiles, you've got you know, sculptures, you've got all these things, I guess, working together, coming from this drawing. What, what's the challenge of, I guess, distilling it in these different ways? It's very instinctive, so um, it's really what I like and, uh, and also what I would buy for myself and for my house. I've discovered Trame, Paris, during the Salone del Mobile here. It's, it's really the, whole, the wool material, so the, the hand feel and, and also the, the color combination that attract me. And It's the same thing to, to, to work on a piece of design and a piece of uh, clothes. So you don't see, there's, there's no distinction for you no, personally? No, for me, no. <laughs> I mean, you're making things that you want to have in your own home. How, how important is that to your work as a designer? And do you think <laughs> other people maybe don't do that? For me, it's very important because it's, uh, it's my, my taste. And uh, I put it into my work and my house uh, and my all life so it's uh, it's very um, super personal also those personal relationships in terms of picking who you want to work with you're, you're talking about Trump Paris there tell us a little bit more about that partnership I, I discover him in Sardurin uh, in del Mobile and uh, and then I've um, I bought two carpets uh, from from him and so this really is already in your own home yeah 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 sure <laughs> then I put in, into my house then Ismail wrote me an email thank you that you're shooting my car my rugs into your house and then that started the, the, the conversation and then we decided to do a project together. I'm curious as well, I mean, this is a thing that I guess we see across the course of Salona del Mobile and, and Milan Design Week. Um, 
it, it feels like lots of fashion brands, uh, uh, I guess, dipping their toes or indeed fully throwing themselves into the deep end of the, the pool that is furniture design and, and sculpture and, and textiles. Why are we seeing so many fashion brands move this way into, I guess, the built environment? What is interesting that you use your creative uh, into a different uh, tool, a different way to, to communicate your own idea. And um, I think our customers are really creative persons. The age is not important because if you are a, um, a creative person, you are at 20 and you are at 80. If you are a creative person, I I imagine that your house corresponds your your taste and your way of living. So to me, it's really a link that it's very, very obvious. Uh, maybe not for everybody. Perhaps not, because I, mean, I feel like you don't see it going the other way necessarily. Like there are very yeah, few fashion, yeah. there are very That's few furniture true. brands that seem That's to be making true. clothing or, or anything like that. Do you think there's a reason that the fashion world seems to be seeping into furniture and not the other way around? Maybe because furniture it's one piece uh, and you one piece you communicate but in maybe with a ready to wear you have to create a collection uh, it's many many things i don't so know it's maybe like it's more complicated in a way i'm not saying that create a furniture is easy it's easy but the ready to wear has many many elements that you have to think about carolina castiglioni there the Retratti installation, which showed in Milan, will travel to New York next, on show at fashion store La Garçon from May 16. Check out the Plan C website for further information on where it will head after that. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced by Maylee Evans. She also edited the show with assistance from Sarah Nickel. I'm Nick Manise, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>